De la patrulla de Minos de California. Weather headlines for today, yes. Welcome to the Revenue Generator Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, you'll hear how industry leaders integrate sales, marketing, product, and customer success into a single business unit with a common goal of optimizing their revenue cycle. We'll unearth how innovators integrate data, technology, people, and processes to expedite demand generation and increase recurring revenue. Sit back, tune in, and get ready to meet a member of the Revenue Generation. Here's the host of the Revenue Generator podcast, the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. Welcome to the Revenue Generator podcast, where we members of the Revenue Generation share solutions for how you can integrate your business to optimize revenue. I'm your host and the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. And today, we're going to discuss strategies and best practices in telco marketing. Joining us is Brad Pruner, who is the Senior Director of Product Strategy, Salesforce Industries at Salesforce, which provides customer relationship management software and applications focused on sales, customer service, marketing automation, analytics, and application development. And today, Brad and I are going to discuss how does VoIP go to market? Okay, here's my conversation with Brad Pruner, the Senior Director of Product Strategy, Salesforce Industries at Salesforce. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. It's great to have you on board. So Brad, you're a creature of the telco industry. You've spent 26 years at Telus, which is a 65,000 employee strong, $15 billion Canadian telco powerhouse. So I think our job today is to crack open your noggin and learn as much as we can about how telco goes to market. So for anybody that's tried to unpack telco, it's not just the major carriers anymore. The industry has grown. It's fractured quite a bit. And Brad, is it fair to say it all started with deregulation in the 90s and some huge shifts in underlying technology? Yeah, you know, I, I was fortunate in my career to, you know, over those 26 years to have worked in many functions. I've worked in sales, marketing, operations, technology. I would say for most of a telecommunications firm's life, things didn't change that much. You know, they were offering plain old phone service, plain old copper voice phone service. They were monopolies and, and think life was pretty good. I'd say there's two really large disruptors that hit carriers in the mid to late 90s. The first of those was the introduction of the internet as we know it today, you know, packet data and the disruptive force that could, that could drive into, into how they manage their networks. And the second was some pretty big shifts that occurred with our regulators, not just in, in the US or Canada, but globally, where the, you know, the carriers were forced to introduce competition into their ecosystems. And that happens to be the beginning of your career, Brad. It must have been a really interesting time to enter telco because, as you you mentioned, you know we really went from this established set of players in many ways, regulated monopolies globally. Some of that was un- overturned in the eighties, if I recall correctly. But you know the carriers, you had your long distance carriers and your local players in the U.S. There's a bit of a breakup, but a lot of that tectonic shift was yet to occur. So you're starting at the beginning of a major shift not just from a regulatory standpoint, but also, as you mentioned, the internet is coming out, right? Mm -hmm. So talk to me about what it was like to be in an organization that was in the middle of that shift and how they dealt with that change, how they absorbed that change and how they thought about the future. Yeah, you know, the first early signs of that change, I was actually working in in service and sales functions and and they were introducing for the first time long distance competition. I'm dating myself here badly. Or voice local exchange competition. And at the time, I think, 
we saw that as a pretty big threat, but we didn't anticipate the technology change that would come along at about the same time. So I, I think our eyes were focused on, you know, these long distance providers who are God forbid offering long distance for only 10 cents a minute or something like that. Right. Or competitive local exchange carriers who are offering, you know, wholesale services. But what we didn't see coming was the disruption from the internet and the, the wholesale kind of reinvention of the technology around how we communicate. And a lot of that began to take root around about 95, 96 into 2000, especially Keeping in mind that the first voice over IP provider, they got their first whiff of, of a market potential back in 1995, right? So very early days of the internet, very early days when we were still using dial-up in some cases. And, and I don't think the carriers anticipated that risk and what it would mean to them. And here we have the industry, the telco industry that we have today, which is incredibly diverse. I'm hesitating to use the word fractured, Brad. That sounds like a pejorative. It's not meant to be, but it's it's an incredibly diverse, thriving, healthy, growing, central part of most of the global economy. But there's a layer I think we're missing as well, which was the explosion of mobile and smartphones and how much that changed the industry. Help us understand what that next layer was like for telcos when mobile really, I guess, replaced long distance as a major revenue source for the carriers. What was that like and, and how did the businesses adjust at that time? Yeah. Perfect storm would be the best way I would describe it. So we have these regulatory changes happening, you know, through the nineties, we had displacement from voice over IP providers in the internet, and then also the widespread adoption of mobile. Now keep in mind that for your average North American tier one carrier, the long distance business was over 40% of their revenues. Right. And, you know, I remember dating myself again as, as a telecom sales rep selling long distance, at 15 or 20 cents a minute. So that wholesale shift of the market, where not only could customers now choose to communicate via voice over IP or via email or via messenger or via whatever for free, and then insert in there also network displacement because you had you know copper networks suddenly facing relevancy challenges being usurped by capital networks. It was a tectonic shift in terms of, of how carriers had to serve their clients and, and created some huge challenges for them in terms of, of how to manage those competing investment demands. Like there were people who did not think that it was a carrier's place to invest in broadband networks in the very early days, right? That, you know, people will always need voice service or, you know, when the wireless, in the wireless market, I recall sitting in meetings where, you know, we were told that the iPhone would never displace the BlackBerry. The BlackBerry was the only serious B2B device, right? You see these changes now, of course, from hindsight, you look back and of course it's ridiculous. But you know, as a telco exec, you've got to make a lot of choices against a very confusing backdrop of everything shifting all at once. It's very difficult to manage. You know, that brings to mind for me, Brad, this idea that the smartphone would not replace the BlackBerry. And I think it was RIM. They were called RIM. Research in motion. Yeah, research in motion. And these are the folks yeah. that were, my gosh, they were the kings, right, of the proto smartphone, right, the BlackBerry. And dating myself as well, I, I remember that day I got the Pearl, Brad. You remember that day when the Pearl came out? Everybody's like, oh, my gosh, the screen is amazing. I can scroll a little bit. But there was this infamous moment where at one of the investor meetings, I think it was a journalist stood up with an iPhone, the earliest version of the iPhone, and held it up and said, what are you going to do about this? And the CEO at that time, whose name I can't recall, was incredibly dismissive of the technology. And three years later, he was out. And RIM was really, in many ways, it's still an organization, by the way, folks still out there, I think, at some point acquired. But really, RIM 
its ascendancy was over at that point. But you said something, Brad, I want to grab a hold of folks. And that is that at one point, 40% of your revenues was tied into long distance revenue. And I want people to take a step back and imagine the following scenario. Somebody comes to you and says that 40% of your revenue is in jeopardy. That wasn't the case for you guys, though, Brad. You didn't know that 40% of your revenue was in jeopardy. The early warning signs were there. So let's imagine instead that you don't know it's in jeopardy, but you're having to react in the moment to 40% of your revenue base going away. I imagine that as much as anything was a tectonic shift for telco is this idea of this massive profit center suddenly going into the ether. Yeah. You have your eye on one challenge and that challenge, you know, we often said that the regulator was our biggest risk, our biggest competitor. You know, they could wipe out our business with a scratch of a pen. And we thought that the long distance competition, you know, driving rates down from 40 cents to 20 to 10 to to five, that was our biggest risk. The truth of it is the biggest risk was also the biggest opportunity, which was the internet. Like what transformed long distance was, or (laughs) destroyed the long distance market, but also created tremendous opportunity was the internet. And that really takes a couple of different angles, right? Like the internet introduced voice over IP, which was a tremendous opportunity for the carriers to reduce their own costs. Like one of the very first use cases of voice over IP was not, you know, me calling you over Skype or something like that. It was the carriers backhauling the back ends of their network using voice over IP between exchange centers. Right? And, and that was a dramatic cost reduction for the carriers. You know, the other big opportunity internet presented. So while yes, it did cannibalize the heck out of the long distance market, it also introduced a whole new market category called broadband, right? And if you think about, especially in the context of the pandemic and the conversation you and I are having here today, that whole market category did not exist and is inarguably much bigger than long distance ever was when you consider fiber, when you consider 4G, 5G. So, you know, every time there's a a disruptive threat on the horizon, you can either ride that ship into the ground, which is, I think some carriers did. Some carriers did say, well, we're a voice copper company. We're just a local regional company. Or you could choose to make those big bets, those big investments in other technologies. And, and that very much was the dynamic that protected us from that revenue loss. Because Ned, that revenue loss that almost every carrier has experienced, most are still growing. And it's because of that displacement that we've seen. You know, I think we like to think in our little bubble, in our little bubble, Brad, for you and I, you're at Salesforce, I'm at Lean Data. Our little bubble is tech. And we like to think of ourselves as being the adroit, the disruptors, you know, the folks that have all the answers. I have to say, I think we benefited from and have frankly been outclassed in so many ways by how telco has adapted and changed over time. And I think, you know, you mentioned this just a moment ago, Brad, but really the first early signs of that change was VoIP right? This first time people were like, oh, there could be a difference. You mentioned Skype as an example, right? That was probably without people being conscious of it. That was probably their first experience with VoIP. So that's a consumer application. But suddenly, you know, you've got this application that can help businesses save a huge amount of money if they can adapt this, right? So VoIP got it start sometime at the beginning of your career in telco, Brad, but talk to us about how that came about and how VoIP grew up as a business within this telco umbrella. Yeah, like the the very early VoIP models, I don't think many carriers took them seriously at first because the very early VoIP models, like if you go back 95, 96, 97, these were models supported by advertising. So so you would have the access to quote unquote free long distance by VoIP, but to make up for that, you had to suffer 
listening to an ad at the starter end of your call. Maybe people forget about that, but that was the early business model. Right? Brad, seriously, are you kidding me? Is that really what no, the model was? was? The business model, very no early. Way. I'm talking about 1996, right? Um, and, and market share in VoIP stayed very low. Like even by like 1997, 98, VoIP was less than 1% of the market. I, I think the where VoIP grabbed hold is when the carriers began to invest with the hardware providers. So if you think about your traditional office environment, full of PBXs and key systems, these large phone relays to set up the office environment, they realized that they could use VoIP as an enabling technology, right? They could use VoIP to allow calls to follow people. They could use VoIP to shed costs between offices, right? And so you saw the likes of Cisco, and I'll say another name that's disappeared, Nortel, another great Canadian company, right? They invested a lot in embedding VoIP technology into their switching gear and into their phone systems, right? And that... You know, my premise or my belief is that led to a lot of wide stream adoption. People began to see VoIP use in a more mainstream environment where it can be used in an office environment, for example. It could be also that was part of, you know, the second key thing that had to happen for VoIP to have widespread appeal is the networks needed to catch up. Like God help you trying to run VoIP over an ISDN connection, right? Or a 28 baud internet connection. So we saw this big build in bandwidth that started to happen in the early 2000s. And that created, I think, the environment for VoIP to go mainstream. So that investment that happened with the Cisco's and the Nortel's created a bunch of great technology. The networks caught up and then suddenly VoIP hit mainstream. And that was around 2003, 2004. And I don't think we've looked back. So you see a lot of these providers, you know, people are familiar with Skype or Vonage or Ring Central. There's literally hundreds of them. But what these companies have done well is they've created a pure over-the-top telephony offering. And they now have widestream consumer acceptance that you don't need to have a wired telephone in your home, right? And the market continues to grow. And I think where it's shifted to finally kind of the last, I shouldn't say last because you're never done evolving, but the carriers now have realized that the VoIP game isn't tied to big office phone systems, right? They've realized that they actually need to have competing offerings that are similar kind of white label or near white label offerings where they're offering the same types of services now as RingCentral or Vonage or Skype or others. So they're now competing head to head in the same market space. It's really interesting. It feels like we have a situation here, Brad, where, you know, we've got the origins of VoIP happening in many ways, simply because the carriers or sorry, the technology providers got on top of broadband. We talked about how there was a huge investment in fiber networks. And in many ways, the Big technology providers got ahead of themselves, got over to skis. So there was this huge capacity, right? The dot-com bubble burst. So I'm wondering how much of that additional capacity actually led to cheap growth for VoIP coming out of that era. In other words, there was all sorts of capacity and these little adroit VoIP players out there were suddenly like, hey, my capacity just got a lot cheaper. It certainly created the ecosystem where the VoIP providers could thrive insofar as if they didn't have those data networks available, like quality would suffer terribly. I remember that the gripe of the tier one carriers has always been, or I guess the perspective that the VoIP providers are somehow getting a free ride. You know, these tier one carriers are investing billions, literally, in fiber networks. And now all applications are just packets on that network, right? So that was always the kind of the tension that existed. But yeah, certainly the VoIP operators could not have succeeded if those investments were not made by the tier one carriers. There's no question about that. 
And then here we are together again with these big technology players. Now they're competing directly, right? They birthed this VoIP movement. And that's what we really wanted to dig into today is this interesting dynamic. You have these nimble players, right? These smaller VoIP players. And we should just maybe mention a few. And I'm also going to throw the term UCAS into the mix here, which is another way of describing it. I believe that's unified communications as a service, right? Do I have that right, Brad? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So when I say UCAS, folks, I mean VoIP. But who are some of the players folks listening today would maybe recognize one of those brand names they would recognize? Yeah. I mean, I mentioned uh, Vonage would be a great example. Skype, Ring Central. These are all, you know, and then you see the blurring of the lines, right? Because many of these companies started as pure voice players, right? So they were offering voice as a packet over an IP network. So I could call you, right? And you would answer and it would be a phone call. You know, th- this kind of notion of the new acronym of UCAS is really realizing that messaging is converging. So not only now are we talking about phone calls, but we're talking about video. You see companies like Blue Jeans or Zoom and others come in- into the fray. You see messaging applications, you see collaboration applications. So you start seeing communications as being more than kind of synchronous voice communication. It's become more of this kind of asynchronous collaboration environment that UCAS tends to represent. And now the big players are coming in and we have this really interesting competition happening out there. So let's talk about how the UCAS slash VoIP people, how they go to market. What, what are some of the hallmarks of how they go to market, Brett? I think for one, many of these providers operate on both a retail and a wholesale model. So their retail offering will be where they're direct to a consumer. And that's typically through a digital model. That's one of their advantages, like where they can market online and sell on managed subscription online, right? But you also see some partners, like some of the same tier one carriers, they have this partner network of these VARs or resellers. You'll see these providers also go through that market on the retail side, but they also have a wholesale offering. Like a, you know, a firsthand experience of, of a couple of these providers who white label their software and sell it to the carriers. And the carriers will then repackage it and call it their own brand of a VoIP offering leveraging the IP of the VoIP or UCAS provider. And how are they going to market with other businesses? Is that purely through their wholesale arm? That would be both through wholesale and retail. Like through other businesses, I've cut my teeth and worked most of my career in B2B, right? And, and I'd say in the early days of competition in the B2B comms market, there was a view that customers would always want to work with an account rep. So, you know, if you want to sell, if you want to be successful in B2B, you better have an account rep wearing a nice suit right, who can go out and talk to the customer. That's long gone, right? I, I think the reality of it is now that we realize that, you know, most all business people are also consumers and they get used to buying things in certain ways. So I, I think what a lot of these subscription services have done is they've created a willingness by B2B customers to buy online or buy on subscription, buy on spec. And so you see these providers actually, you know, buying or selling to customers directly through online channels. And that's one of their unique advantages, again, because they're smaller, they're more nimble. They can create these channels and create market reach, even though they can't afford the armies of salespeople that are more traditionally associated with B2B sales. It strikes me as there's a ton of parallels to how SaaS goes to market here, how software companies like ours go to market, Brad, in many ways. And I have to say, having competed against the Oracles and the SAPs for a really long time, I would say I feel like that's the analogy I have in my head, right? It's this idea of smaller SaaS players with advantages in their business model, allowing them to go to market more efficiently, right? And then facing these bigger folks that ultimately can't adjust as quickly. 
if I could just top up on that, because it's interesting in terms of the market reach, right? Because what you saw with the tier one carriers is they started in the enterprise markets and have these large sales forces and these large employee bases where they push into that market using a direct sales model. And these smaller upstart providers can never afford that reach. They kind of push bottoms up with a pure, more like a SaaS type play where they're just selling direct to the consumer. They're bumping into each other now, right? You have enterprise buyers who would consider subscribing to a voiceover IP application service as their only means of office communication. Like that is jaw dropping. There was a recent study that said that 90% of IT managers are no longer considering investment in office telephony. 90%. That's another huge business that's effectively gone. So I think the buying paradigm quite dramatically and the pandemic has accelerated that. As you said it earlier, Brad, I got to tell you, I think telco is really the place that has proven adroitness. It's proven the ability to adjust and change. I think it's ultimately the birth mother of SaaS in many ways and all the tactics that we've adopted and learned from and really benefited from and enjoyed. And Brad, I also imagine that there's quite a bit because, you know, we're really talking about VoIP being 27, 28 years old at this point, going back to 1995 and its origins. I imagine those are some very interesting rev tech stacks that they're sitting on top of and managing. And I'd like to dig into that more. Brad, would you come back and talk to me about how to deal with those rev tech stacks? Absolutely. I look forward to it. All right. Fantastic. Okay. That wraps up this episode of the Revenue Generator Podcast. Thanks to Brad Pruner, Senior Director of Product Strategy, Salesforce Industries at Salesforce for joining us. For part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Brad and I are going to discuss modernizing the telco rev tech stack. If you can't wait to our next episode and would like to learn more about Brad, you can find a link in his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't get a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, shame on you. Head over to RevGenPod.com where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter, apply to be a speaker of the Revenue Generator podcast, or you can even share your revenue generation questions, which we'll answer live on the show, of course. You can always reach out on social media. Our handle is RevGenPod on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or you can contact me directly. My handle is MarketAdvocate. If you haven't subscribed yet and would like a daily stream of RevGen strategies in your podcast feed, we're going to publish an episode every day during the work week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed in the next business day. Okay, that's all for today. But until next time, keep cranking because the revenue isn't going to generate itself. 